1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books and Film podcast, a series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Jake S. Friedman, the author of The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. The book was published by Chicago Review Press in 2022. Hi, Jake. How are you doing today? Hi, Pete. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Glad to have the opportunity to talk about this book with you. Yeah, me too. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about your, your background and what brought you to animation history? Sure.
1: I went to NYU film school. I studied animation there. Um, following, I went through like the whole animation uh, program at NYU, and then I worked in the animation field for about 10 years on shows for like, Disney and Nickelodeon all based here in New York where I live or on the East Coast Um, my final swan song I guess before I kind of phased it out was working on a feature film for Blue Sky Studios called Epic Um, and uh, now I dedicate most of my time to being an animation historian and and teaching it at uh, universities like NYU and FIT Um, but I had been writing about animation for a long time since like 2006. I think that's when my first article for animation magazine popped up. And I had been maybe about like 50 or 60 articles about animation since then. So I've been in it for a long time. Oh, and I have a couple books besides this. I wrote the book on blue sky called the art of blue sky studios, which, which came out around, I think 2014 or so. And I wrote a book called uh, The Disney Afternoon, uh, which is still forthcoming. It is written, it is uh, edited and and researched, and Disney Editions has been holding on to it. But um, they assure me that it will be out in a little under two years.
0: Well, hopefully when it does come out, you'll come back on the podcast because I would love to talk about The Disney Afternoon because that was very much my childhood. Yeah, (laughs) I would be happy to. (laughs) Great, great. So this is a really important moment in the history of Disney and the history of animation, but it's one that um, really hasn't been written about extensively. I mean, I was just thinking about stuff I've read in the past. I remember, you know, it obviously comes up in Neil Gabler's biography and Tom Sito's work. But um, I, I think it's something that maybe a lot of people don't even know about. So what drew you to the topic?
1: I, I also kind of sort of knew a little bit about it, but not that much. The Disney publications, stuff that came out by like Disney editions or Hyperion had at the time, like in, in around 2008 or 2009, had nothing about the Disney strike. The only place where you could read anything about it were in books by, you know, Disney veterans not published through Disney, like Jack Kinney's book, um, and maybe uh, Seamus Colhane's books talk about it a little bit. And I found it really fascinating. Um, and uh, I knew that it had something to do with the labor strike. I knew that it resulted in the Disney Animation Studio becoming a union house. Uh, my parents were part of the Philadelphia Teachers Union. So I kind of grew up in a, in a pro union household. And unions were kind of talked around the dinner table, just sort of like matter of fact, we weren't like raising the banner or marching down the street. It was just sort of like, yeah, we have a job, we have a union and the union advocates for us. That was just sort of like basic, you know, the ABCs of working as far as I was concerned. So I found it interesting that there was not much written about it. And then when Tom Sito's book came out, I think 12 years ago, there's a lot of oral history in there, but also like Gabler's book, there's there's a lot of glossing over that doesn't run through the 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 course of events that explains how a group of people, how hundreds of people who could start out completely aligned with Walt's vision could end up just diverting from that path so starkly, and just like both sides kind of uh, vilifying each other, um, how how they were all in one boat together in it to win it for. Snow White. And then just in a couple years, they're, they're making angry handbills and shouting epithets at cars that drive into the studio a lot. And I wanted to understand how you got from A to B. Um, and I knew that the guy who led the strike was Walt's top animator, Art Babbitt. So that created a whole other level of drama. Like here's a guy who's responsible for Goofy, like one of the core characters of the studio, not to mention being a lead animator for the films, you know, uh, Snow White and, and, uh, and uh, Pinocchio and Fantasia and Dumbo. And he's clearly earning a lot of money during like the Great Depression. Why would he put it all on the line to lead the strike? So um, I found his just his personality really fascinating, but I didn't know I was gonna write a book about it. It wasn't until I came back to visit NYU as, as, a, as a young professional, I came to visit my class that I had taken when I was a student called Animation History, taught by John Culhane. And I adored John Colhane. And it was that day in like 2008 or 2009, when he told me, and I was in my 20s, he said, you're going to write this book. And I was like, what? <laughs> me? I think I'd only written like a few articles for Animation Magazine at that time and some articles for our local newsletter for Asifa East. Um, and uh, it took me a while to wrap my head around it, but he had been in touch with the widow of Art Babbitt. Her name was Barbara Babbitt. And she wanted this a book about her husband to be published because she was afraid that his his legacy was going to be um, like brushed under the the carpet with, with everything else about the strike. So she was eager for his memory to live on. She had she shared this idea with a bunch of people. Everyone passed on it, and John Colhane recommended me. So that was 2008 or so, and it took about a year for me to get up the courage and figure out that, wow, I could dedicate time to this. And I just like went by my gut and flew to LA. And from that point on, for me, for years, I was flying over to Barbara Babbitt's house doing research and she saved everything in this like attic type space on her first floor. It was like a big kind of like giant room of a cubby hole, like a garage, but without a car in it. And she had just like tons of files. Um, she saved everything. And Art Babbitt, when he was alive, saved everything. So I found myself going through like, art's letters from Disney when he was there in the thirties and forties, his like Disney ID card, his like old photos from that time. And then I found old home movies that he shot while at Disney. And I found old interviews that he had done. And I found myself like getting to know him intimately in a really, just like in kind of a really uh, empathic way. I never could have otherwise just like getting into the nitty gritty of him. And, uh, and although you know, I never met him personally, he died in 1992. I felt like I got as close as a person can get to knowing someone. And um, bit by bit, I just uncovered other sources of information and other documents that had been hidden in different collections and in different archives. And none of those had seen the light of day. None of the other authors wrote about like um, these, these hidden archives. And I realized I'm gonna be the person to bring these to light. <laughs> Uh, the, like legal documents and like uh, uh, strike bulletins had been sitting in, in a university archive for 80 years. So this book that I have, um, The Disney Revolt, just brings to light resources that had never been used before to uncover the course of events that resulted in and during and before the Disney strike.
0: Yeah, That was something that was quite amazing to me as I was reading it. Is I was like, how does he know this? Where did he get this information from? And my next question was going to be like, how do you write a history of a strike in 1941, especially when Disney has quite a reputation as being quite protective of its archive. So it's fascinating to hear that you had this relationship with Barbara and access to all these materials um, from art himself, because he really ends up being the, the hero of your book. Um, so, the Disney strike lasted, I believe, nine weeks, um, And but you start 40 years earlier. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about why you start with Elias Disney? Well, um, I
1: start with you know how Walt became Walt, how he developed his opinions, and how he got to be the person who stood so staunchly against the strikers. Why was he so anti-union? Why did he... Uh, just steer clear of any socialist beliefs. And I pieced together a bunch of things, including Walt's own interviews, talking about his dad being a socialist and being a supporter of the leader of the socialist party, Eugene Debs. And, um, And Walt's dad being such as what Walt called a Debs man, really made a lot of sense when it came to by the time Walt was 16 he's like raging against his dad his dad was very authoritarian and Walt and his dad was anti-world war one you know eugene deb's protested the war and got arrested for sedition because it's illegal to protest a war in world war one and he was promoting protesting the war well walt's dad of course supported this guy and what what did walt do in 1916 he fudged his papers so he could join the war effort. He was too young and he changed the date on his form so he could join at age 16 instead of 17. So um, it was kind of like a big, you know, thumbing his nose at his dad and everything his dad stood for. His dad, who had like was so pro-socialist that everyone in the family, including the kids, had to earn money to keep the family afloat and so Walt was you know as we all know delivering papers when he was a kid like for years and years in the morning and then in the evening so in, in in raging against his dad Walt is like solidifying his anti-socialist stance that combined with some other things like he also had empathy for his dad and he remembered times when um socialist groups took advantage of his dad and i was able to uncover the details of one of these uh farm collectives that his dad was part of back when they were living in marceline missouri that was actually and no one had written about this before but this farm collective was actually a pyramid scheme that took advantage of good natured and and open-hearted farmers like elias disney so they sunk all their money into this thing and it ended up just benefiting some like magazine magnate in chicago Um, and so uh, that so I have like three chapters at the beginning of the book describing how Walt developed his politics and his opinion then I have a couple chapters explaining how Art Babbitt developed his politics and his opinions because Walt and Art are very similar Um, they grew up in the Midwest they are both driven to excel Uh, they both had to work hard when they were very young so they had like of really like strong work ethic. And they both believe in animation as just a fantastic art form that can change the world. So how could two people who got along so well and who were so aligned just clash so mightily? Um, and they were both extremely um, staunch in their beliefs. So I explained in the first few chapters how Art kind of like developed his identity as a, as a troublemaker as a kid, kind of living like a Tom Sawyer Huck Finn childhood in Sioux City, Iowa. Um, And how his mom was very demonstrative and like would march down the street uh, banging on pots and pans, declaring the end of World War I. And and everything just seemed to fit right in with like how art ended up uh, showing up when the strike came. Uh, but I didn't want to make either one of them the villain. Um, certainly not art because, you know, it's no secret that I'm pro-union, but Walt's not the villain either. He's just going after his beliefs and he has every right to believe what he believes. Um, and I didn't, I wanted to, I wanted the reader to like empathize with like where where Walt was coming from because Walt just wanted to protect his studio and wanted to stay in business during a very raucous time. Uh, So putting everything in a proper context, nothing exists in a vacuum. I thought that I'd be able to sort of like show the human side of this really difficult event. Also, I didn't want um, people who are pro-Disney, who love Disney, to change their minds. I think think Walt is still an amazing person. I think the company is still and was an amazing company. I'm pro-union, I'm pro-Disney. I wanted that to come through in the book.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fascinating backstory for this American icon to see where he comes from and to see how difficult his childhood was. Considering you know he famously converts it into this nostalgic fantasy with Main Street USA, right? Like that's marceling, but it, like it wasn't easy. Um, and in many ways, Walt's upbringing shows potential downsides to socialist thinking. You know, you could understand how he would see socialism. That his father was advocating and yet his father wasn't kind of fulfilling that or coming through with it and uh, as opposed to art who as you mentioned is um is left really helping to support the family after his father's injury right i mean this becomes they're very similar paths in terms of navigating the the economic difficulties of the early 20th century right right so art becoming
1: the breadwinner for the family when he was just in high school was something that changed him. I mean, as it would change any anyone. Both Art and Walt were operating off of their
0: childhood traumas in a way. Yeah. You know, the other major trauma that that often gets talked about by Disney historians is um, you know Charles Mintz uh, withdrawing the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and taking a great deal of Walt's um, animators in the process. Can you talk a little bit about? the founding of Disney as we know it today, because next year's the, the centenary, right? We're coming on the hundredth anniversary. Um, but it seems that's an important moment for Walt in terms of his relationship with his animators. And the fact that when we think of Walt Disney films, unless we're animation fans, we think of him as, as the animator. When of course he really didn't pick up the pen much, (laughs) um, for the things that we know him for. Right. I mean, by that point, I mean, he didn't even really design Mickey mouse. Um, so anyway, I'm babbling. Can you tell us a little bit more about the early days of the Disney studio uh, and in particular kind of Walt rebounding from this, the mince betrayal? Uh, do I need to go into
1: the whole mince betrayal thing or can we assume that our listeners know about it?
0: Well, I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting for me to think about in reading your book was, you know, um, I was reading something recently where it says, you know, Walt never gave credit to his animators, which of course wasn't true, right? We we see that in, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that he actually puts up those cards, and you mentioned that in your book. But it does seem to, to shape, after Mince, it really kind of seems to shape how Walt is positioning himself and how he's running his studio, right? I mean, do you feel like coming out of the Mint's Betrayal, there is a sense of here's how you run a studio and here's how you protect your product and here's how you, you, you know, survive in this industry? Yeah.
1: Um, well, I think like three things happened after, after what you're calling the Mint's Betrayal. I don't want to think of it as the Mint's Betrayal. I just want to think of it as, you know, business. I think when we talk, when Walt talked about it in his later life and people who are fans of Walt listen to him talk about it, we think of Mintz as a villain, but um, peop- creators create stuff for other studios all the time. And then that studio owns the product. You know, If you create a cartoon show and it airs on Cartoon Network, you don't own the show. Cartoon Network owns the show or Nickelodeon or anything else. If Cartoon Network hires you to create a character, you create the character and then they make a whole series of that character. You don't own the character. The network owns the character. So Universal hired Waltz Studio to create a character. They create Oswald. Um, Mince's Oswald is, uh, Oswald's ex- is uh, extremely successful. They have this contract. Everything's in black and white ink. And then Mince is like, you know, I can be more successful on my own if I just produce my own studio and not um, farm out to this independent small-time guy who's like only in his early twenties. And so he does. And it's just, he's just being a businessman. I mean, that's just commerce. That's 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 capitalism for you. If you think it's unfair, then you have a problem with capitalism. So three things happened after Walt uh, lost the contract. Um, one, uh, he realized that, that loyalty was the most important thing to him because Mintz hired away all of his employees, except for Ub and a couple of low-level guys like Les Clark. So loyalty is super important. Uh, the second thing is that Walt's like, the one thing people can't take away from me is my name. So we're going to change the studio from the Disney Brothers studio to the Walt Disney studio. And Roy, is his brother, is like, okay, that's fine by me. And the third thing is that Walt hired a guy named Gunther Lessing, who was an independent entertainment lawyer who was based in Texas, who... <laughs> Walt had met probably through some Hollywood party and Gunther Lessing becomes Walt's uh, like part of the, the payroll on January 1st, but before that he's kind of working freelance for Walt to help protect Walt from anyone else taking Mickey Mouse away. But yeah, thanks for mentioning the title card for Snow White. So everyone's working really hard to make Snow White happen and people are working day and night, putting extra overtime hours. Walt is promising everyone bonuses. They have this big luxurious bonus plan that's in place. People are earning a lot of money on the shorts. Um, And uh, in the title card for Snow White, Walt thanks his staff for uh, their loyalty and their creative endeavor, end quote. And it's interesting that those are the two things he values most and those, and loyalty comes first. So his staff stuck by him to make this, this whole new thing, a feature length animated cartoon when lot, lots of critics are sort of poo pooing or skeptical of the idea. So he values loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. Um, and that creates a big problem when the strike comes because Walt takes it personally. He says, these people aren't loyal to me, 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 me. It's about him. He had attached his name to the studio. And so now when people are striking against the studio, Walt translates it as they're striking against me, the man. Other studios didn't react that way. MGM did not react that way. They actually brought, they they signed a union contract relatively quickly. They were the first big animation studio to do so back in late 1940. And that had made such headlines that all the other animation studios pretty much followed suit. So that by the time Disney's uh, 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 independent union people came up and said, we want a union too, every other studio had one. Every other studio had a union. And we're talking about six major studios in Hollywood and Disney was the last one. And not just Disney being the last... uh, animation studio to not have an animation union, but the animators as a craft were the last craft to not have a union. You know, we have starting out with the screen actors and screenwriters and screen directors, et cetera, et cetera. Every craft in Hollywood from the thirties on had gotten a union. So the animators were the last and Disney was the last of that craft, but Disney still took it, Walt Disney still took it very personally, which is unfortunate because, um, you know, just like with the Mintz thing, it was, just, it was just, I guess, business. People just wanted a different way to, to, to function in, in, in the studio. It wasn't about loyalty. It was just about wanting a union.
0: And along those lines, one of the things I thought was quite interesting is how you kind of map out, you know, what's going on with um, the labor unions uh, across the United States, really, at the time uh, and then into Hollywood. Can you just give us a a, a brief snippet that readers can go in and get all that in your book, of course. I'm just hoping you can give us a sense of like the unions when they get to Hollywood, what's that like? Uh, It was kind of chaotic. (laughs) We have um, a lot of
1: different groups who are fighting for control over the same craft. So um, if you're an actor, you can sign with with one union or another union or a third union, so every like all these different groups are trying to control the actors. All these different groups are trying to control the directors or writers, and these different unions are trying to control the animators. You have this in company union at Disney. Um, you have the independent union, which is you know industry wide, and you have, which is called the uh, Screen Cartoonist Guild, and then you have the um, IATSE, the IATSE which is um, unfortunately at the time, not anymore, but at the time run by a Chicago gangster named Willie Byoff, who is tied to the Al Capone gang. And he's, and he has this great scheme of signing up as many uh, crafts as possible. And then um, blackmailing studio heads to take their craft workers out on strike if they don't pay him a few hundred thousand dollars in 1938 you know, 1938 hundreds of thousands of dollars. So um, Willie Bioff ends up making a very uh, successful game of it, of uh, going down from Chicago to Hollywood and becoming super rich, being this crooked union head. Um, And it was, it was Bioff that, that the Disney studio at first wanted to block and then Later on during the strike, when you have the clean <laughs> independent union coming in, it's buy-off who the studio decides to align with to in order to block the the independent union, which is which is nuts.
0: High drama. I, I, yeah. He's just one of the many interesting characters in your book, right? I mean, between Gunther Lessing, the lawyer, and then um, you know Walt and Art, and then. You know, and then you have gangsters in it too, right? I mean, I think more uh, animation history needs gangsters. In it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so so I, yeah. I did try to, 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 like, as I said, I wasn't
1: trying to make Walt a villain, but I did mm-hmm. find villains in Willy Byoff and in Gunther Lessing.
0: And yeah, Lessing I mean, is not I mean,
1: written about much at all in any other Disney books, not very much at all, but he had a major role to play in the 40, uh, the, the whole period of the 1930s and 40s, and especially the 41 strike.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when readers get to your book, even, even the brief pages you spend on his uh, butting heads with Dolores Del Rio, um, it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, so, short version, Cliff Notes, why do they strike? Why do the Disney animators finally say, you know, Walt, the antics have gone too far?
1: Oh, man. There's no one answer to that. I think well, I mean, I,
0: Yeah, they should read the book, of course, but, yeah. <laughs> but
1: there's, there's really no one answer. It was a, it was many, many individual events over the course of like three years that led them to that point. Um, Walt's ego had something to do with it. Art Babbitt's ego had something to do with it. The independent animation guild, uh, growing, and signing up unions at MGM and Warner Brothers and other places too. But there are all these little like dramatic moments that happen inside the Disney studio that cause Walt to feel that Art Babbitt is a Benedict Arnold. And Art Babbitt is feeling um, turned on by Walt. And I found that actually it was Gunther Lessing who was kind of orchestrating a lot of those ill feelings between the two, just so he, just so Lessing could maintain his seat of power as as the vice president of the company and lean into Walt's fears. I don't know if you can hear the siren in the background, can you? Yeah, it's the charm
0: of New York City, right? <laughs> yeah. Where are you based? I, I'm in New Orleans at the moment. New Orleans, um, okay. okay. But I, I also live near a major road, so I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to hide in a back room. Um, so one of the things I think was interesting, too, is not everyone goes on strike. Um, and a lot of animation history, especially of Disney, has focused on the nine old men. How did the nine old men respond? You know, how did these, this loyal team of animators who Walt held up as kind of his, his guys... Um, How did they respond to this um, labor unrest? Oh, my God.
1: Well, none of the nine old men went out on strike. That term only came about after the strike. Um, And they all ended up having long careers, long careers, decades-long careers at at Disney. Um, And uh, Ward Kimball is the only one of the nine old men that appeared to be sympathetic and kind of like wavered on day one, whether he should go in or whether he should go out. Um, he was best friends with Freddie Moore, who stayed in, but he was also very good friends with Walt Kelly, who, who left. Walt Kelly had, he, he, he didn't know what to do, so he just left. Couldn't go out on strike, couldn't stay in. Um, and, so, and so Ward stayed in, but because of, um, so because Forty nine percent stayed in and fifty one left. It was really hard to determine who had the majority. And when a union has a majority, they automatically win. You know, they audit, like this the the place of work automatically becomes a union house. But it could not be determined. Um, Three hundred and thirty people walked out, give or take, and a close amount stayed in and they stayed in for very reasonable reasons. Those who were in felt like Walt was a good boss and they felt that the environment that they were working in was awesome. And there were a lot of really cool amenities there. It was this big new Burbank studio. They had they had all of these great new um, luxuries that other animation studios did not have. Not a single animation studio had. And they felt like, like uh, Walt was taking care of them, especially during this like really difficult economic time. So people had good reasons to stay. And also they didn't want to lose their income <laughs> because they, maybe they were building families. Those who went out wanted the income that they felt Walt promised them because of these bonuses and this bonus plan that Walt had kept talking about. After Snow White, the bonus plan dried up like it just disappeared. They saw that these bonuses they were counting on, really that money was kind of funneled into the new Burbank studio. And Walt was saying, I built this for you. But those animators who were unhappy said, we wanted to, you know, build families with that money. We wanted to pay a a, a mortgage for our home with that money. We didn't want fancy desks, you know, um designed by this this cool guy. We just wanted the money so we could have our own lives. And Walt just didn't understand that.
0: And another thing that really comes through in your book too is, you know, many of the people who stayed were likely the most well compensated as opposed to, you know, if you were a woman at the Disney studio. I mean, it seems like the salary as for so many women at that time presumed you had a partner who would supplement. Right. Um, I mean, many of these folks by virtue of how hierarchies work were being paid quite differently, but also being paid lower than the other studios. Right. Yeah.
1: So, so the lowest paid, the inkers, the painters, the animation in betweeners and, and a lot of the assistants were were being paid less than the same jobs at other studios. Um, And yet they were creating much more memorable work, not only Snow White, but Oscar winning shorts. The Disney studio had won every, every Oscar that decade. And they just didn't understand why. And they argued that Walt was, Walt was talking about art for art's sake. Like you should be glad just to be working here. That's what these strikers were saying that that's that that was arts uh that was uh Walt's narrative so i don't know if that was true or not but they
0: definitely got that idea from somewhere yeah i mean it, that leads into my next question which is by this time Walt is probably the winningest oscar winner of all time right i mean he's just collecting so many oscars including the the multiple statuettes oh, yeah oh, by 41 i mean he's
1: well I don't know if you can
0: count the, the seven tiny
1: statuettes,
0: but as he does individual sweep the wins. animated shorts as you mentioned, and I mean you know he's he's quite esteemed in Hollywood and as, as other Disney scholars have written, I mean you know he has a great deal of respect from the intelligentsia I mean he's really being held up as a major artist um, so my, my question mm-hmm. was really, how did Hollywood respond to this esteemed figure all of a sudden being at the center of a major labor dispute the Screen Actors Guild supported the Disney Strikers
1: 100%. 100%. Every day. Um, every guild across the country supported the Disney Strikers, um, including the, the Printers Guild that were printing Mickey Mouse comics and, and Donald Duck comics, and, as well as like comic book reprints of the comic strips. They went out on strike and sympathy. Technicolor went out on strike and sympathy. So Technicolor is no longer processing Disney films, which is incredible. As far as fans, there were pickets outside every movie theater that played any Disney feature or Disney short. And uh, patrons still went in, some didn't, but some did. And there were pickets outside the theaters that were showing the reluctant dragon, which premiered during the strike. And the reports from the trade papers say that this did affect ticket sales, but not too much. Like there was still a profit. It didn't really have the, the drastic boycott effect that the strikers had hoped it would. So it seems like fans were kind of split about it, even though all of the um, unions from coast to coast, were supportive of the strikers,
0: and then you detail, you know, what brought it to a conclusion. I'm curious what you see as some of the immediate impacts. Right, so after the strike's done, you know, how is the company changed? How is Walt changed? How did the company change?
1: They say that it was that there there was an atmosphere that was lost that. Um, it became, since since the union came in, um, it felt a lot more corporate and it felt, um, it like didn't have like, like the homey feel. Like you could just, um, uh, like there was kind of an air of trust. Like if you got sick, you trusted the company would take care of you. If you went out, the company trusted you to get your work done. They weren't clocking you. Um, and that and that changed after the strike like everything had to become more corporate and and um, everyone had to make sure that well the workers had to make sure the company was taking care of them and the company had to make sure th- that the workers were getting their work done so it was there was no just like handshake deals so to speak um, and Walt himself he kind of withdrew and he didn't have as much of a hands-on you know, uh, hanging out with the sailors, so to speak, as he had before. Something had shifted in him after the strike. And, like, he, I think he was trying to sort of recreate a sort of family atmosphere. And the strike for him was a real blow to his sense of that. He was calling his his animators my boys a lot. Even they complained about his paternalism during the strike they didn't want that and that's their word their word was paternalism so after the strike he he just focused his eyes on other things and it wasn't soon after the strike that well the war took a lot of time and energy world war ii and after world war ii Walt is trying to get back on his feet again and trying to just like create he produced a bunch of packaged films just to keep the the uh, studio afloat wanted to create another princess movie and he came out with Cinderella and it was soon after that that he set his eyes on TV and then the parks and the animators who stayed, the loyal animators like Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson say that they never saw Walt as knee deep in the features ever again It until Peter Pan that was like one outlier where Walt was was as involved as with the others. He always had creative input for all the features, but he wasn't as like personally deeply invested with those other artists. Yeah,
0: and, and you mentioned briefly too, that he he testified before the House Committee on Automatic Connectivities, right? And I don't think a lot of people realize that, but it seems that he wouldn't have done that had it not been for the strike because a lot of his testimony um, was was grounded in what happened there. We haven't even talked about Herb Sorel, but the reader can find out more about Herb Sorel in your book. But, um, you know, Herb Sorrell is one of the major targets in that testimony, right?
1: Yeah. Herb Sorrell, he was called in Variety as uh, Hollywood's number one labor leader. Like, this was praise, um, just to clarify. And um, after, well, during during the, the Red Scare, he was kind of blacklisted. So Walt goes on the record and... This testimony is easy to find. It's public domain. People will find it. He's asked to name names and Walt names four names. And he said, I think this business manager of the union was a communist. I think that business manager of the union was a communist. And I think this business manager of the union was a communist. He just goes down, starting with Herb Sorrell, the guy who, who basically directed Art Babbitt, How to Lead the Disney Strike, followed by Herb Sorrell's successor and that successor's Uh, successors. So the fourth person that Walt names is uh, Dave Hilberman, who was um, kind of uh, not Art Babbitt's right-hand man, but like maybe like the the third right-hand man. He was the secretary of the guild, and he was in charge of kind of like passing around union cards for people to sign. And Hilberman was a communist, like he went to Russia as a young person and was moved by uh, how the, the, the plays, he was painting backgrounds for the plays there, how there was like um, racial equality themes where when there weren't any in the United States, he was moved by free art supplies and stipends for artists. And he was like, this is great. If this is what communism brings, I'm in And he came back, and he was a communist. But he didn't really talk about it that much. As far as I know, he's the only member of the Communist Party. But there were all of these scare tactics that were saying that the strike was communist-led and that Herb Sorrell was a communist. No evidence of this. That the lawyer of the the, uh, Disney strikers, of the union, was a communist. There's no evidence of this. Um, There was just like all these scare tactics to make it feel that 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 these people are a threat to democracy. In fact, none of this clearly was true. It was just something that, I guess, pundits were writing about in some of the right-wing newspapers and Walt kind of fed into it. And who was pointing into those newspapers but Gunther Lessing?
0: So finally, uh, the last question I want to ask you is, how does this affect art? You know, you you end with art. Um, So... Can you tell us kind of where does Art Babbitt go after the the strike? Art Babbitt's
1: path after the strike, um, it wasn't very rosy. He, what's interesting is that he was after the strike, Disney had to the company had to rehire all of the strikers. It was a legal requirement; otherwise, they were going to be pegged for uh, discrimination. You can't fire people for union activity. That's against the law. But Art Babbitt was fired. And he said, you can't fire me. You got to hire me back. So, so they hired him back. Then they fired him again. And, uh, he was like, okay, if you're going to fire me, I'm going to take you to court. And so Art Babbitt sued Walt Disney, which takes guts. And that whole, that whole thing, that, uh, that That whole document, that fifteen hundred page court document of, his, of of that of that trial, and all the evidence became a big foundation of of source material for the book. had never been used in any published material before.
0: Yeah, I was unaware of it, but it was incredibly fascinating. I think to me, Babbitt was really the the person who I found myself constantly drawn to as I was reading your book.
1: Oh, cool. I'm, I'm kind of curious. i'll I'll finish answering your question, but I really want to know what you got out of the book um but so babbitt following uh this lawsuit winning the lawsuit and 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 following world war ii hiring being hired back at disney because he was a marine he served overseas came back worked until uh throughout 1946 felt it was a toxic environment and 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 left in early 1947 his final project was bongo from fun and fancy free um and he and he was part of the UPA folks working on like early UPA shorts, but then they were blacklisted. He um uh in 19 well like in the in like the late 1940s he joined uh Lou Boonin, who was making a stop motion Alice in Wonderland film, but then Disney sort of like squelched that film because they came out with their Alice in Wonderland film. So they had they signed an exclusive contract with Technicolor and so Lou Boonin's film looks crappy and failed at the box office. So Babbitt had that project kind of like fall out from under him. And he he just sort of he 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 started the first like big animation program at uh, USC. He was teaching at USC and became the first series professor of animation and and taught folks um for like several years there. Um Back in 1952 or 53, following that, he he just was unsatisfied, completely unsatisfied and got really depressed and ended up working, doing like commercial direction at Hanna-Barbera when Richard Williams discovered him and sort of like breathed new life into him and brought him over to his studio in London To teach all of those folks the classic way to animate now in the 70s you know we take it for granted but the animation in the 70s was like (laughs) pretty more or less a wasteland with the exception of a couple disney features everything on tv was like hanna-barbera crap no offense to the the outliers like scooby-doo but you have like gilligan's planet and all these scooby-doo knockoffs i mean it was just there was no love for animation and the audience, the global audience was falling out of love with animation. Art Babbitt helped bring people back. And he, and he taught the people who would end up doing the animation for Who, Freeman, Roger, Rabbit. Uh, so he, Babbitt, is not only part of the end of the Disney Golden Age, but also part of the animation renaissance. And he died a living legend in 1992.
0: Yeah, he's he's just a, a, an incredibly fascinating figure. And as you mentioned, kind of links these two generations um, or multiple generations, I should say. But
1: I thank you. I'd like to know what you got out of the book, what your reader, what, what our listeners here might get out of you talking about being a reader who... who well, I've read a lot
0: of Disney stuff over the years, and there's always the temptation to make Disney... Um, Uh, this uh, hagiographically treat him hagiographically right um i think we get a more complex vision of walt here um based on a lot of fascinating primary research and i'm i'm endlessly intrigued by the history of disney from an animator's perspective and i feel like in this narrative uh, your readers will see that like the animators were absolutely fundamental to this kind of major transitional moment where they actually kind of push back against Walt and push back against, in some ways, the image that he was cultivating of himself. Um, And I think we get a more dynamic, a more complicated, a more generative vision of what the studio was and who Walt was in the process.
1: Awesome. Thank
0: you. Part of the reason I want to talk to you is that I hope others will, will read this book and enjoy it as much as I did. I was I was surprised at both your ability to balance so much detail, including kind of just like the personalities of these folks and how they were interacting with each other as by, while keeping it accessible. Right. That's always the challenge is like, you know, when you're a historian, you're like I want to tell you this thing. But then at a certain point, it's like, hey, okay, now you're really in the weeds. But, you know, you really do a nice job of kind of balancing all these figures and keeping the chapters um, enjoyable in the process. So I, I really appreciate your time today and talking with me.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think we have time for another question or two before we have, we have to split. I, I I'm just curious if you
0: could tell us a little bit more about what you're working on. You, you alluded to the Disney afternoon. Um, is there anything you're writing at the moment or are you seeing that through publication?
1: Well, right now I'm sort of like traveling around, doing some talks and stuff, um, talking about this book, talking about the Disney revolt. It took me a long time to write, so I'm really trying to get as many people into it as possible. As I said, John Colhane enlisted me in 2008, so it's been 14 years since that day, and Although I wasn't working on it every one of those years, I would say about 10 years were spent on research and, and maybe with overlap, maybe five years on writing. And there were drafts that did not make it of this book. There, the original draft was going to be a wound to tomb biography of Art Babbitt. My agent and I tried to sell that. No one was going to buy it. The publishers were like, important story. No one's going to buy it. No one knows who this person is. So I kind of like reworked this book a, several times just to get it something that that people would be interested to read, and not just Disney fans, but people who like good good stories, like pieces of Americana, people who like underdog stories. I wanted this to speak not just to the niche group, but to people who want a good human story. I think, I think. Um, Art Babbitt's a fascinating human being. I think Walt also is a fascinating human being once once we take him off the pedestal.
0: I don't know what he is. I think. mean, I, I'm biased because I'm also a Disney historian, but I, I think exactly right. I mean the job of the historian in many ways is to, you know, not romanticize, but to tell the truth based on the evidence available. And I feel like the amount of evidence you have here, the kinds of evidence you have here and the the renderings, the figures you offer us in the process is is really an original and exciting contribution. And I hope people enjoy it as much as I did.
1: Well, thank you.
0: And thank you, Jake. I appreciate your time today. The book is The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, available now from Chicago Review Press. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.